you for including me. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to meet you all. I hope I might meet some of you in person. Uh, let me tell a story rather than answer your questions directly. Uh, when I was a uh, medical intern and junior resident in San Francisco, I had a very interesting group of senior residents. Um, one of them uh, went on to be the head of the National Cancer Institute. Uh, another was the brother of a ve very famous rock and roll uh, person. But an another fellow was a bon vivant who I knew at, at some point would either become a gynecologist in Beverly Hills or one of the most uh, illustrious uh, people in New York. And he went on to open a practice in New York uh, in a very posh neighborhood that took care of all these very wealthy movie stars and so on and so forth. He sent me a long line over the years of very attractive, highly neurotic um, soap opera stars, women, with headache and with paresthesias and with hyperventilation and so on. And I was about to tell him to stop when he called me one day and said, can you come down here and see one of my patients? He's an actor named Michael Fox. I said, no, but if he wants to come up, he's welcome to. And in strolled one day a very unassuming uh, young, very short, slight, thin fellow, obviously Fox, uh, with a backpack slung over his shoulders, wearing jeans, sat down, threw his backpack on the floor and said, call me Mike. And what he wanted was to, he, he had been seen by all the glitterati physicians in New York. He wanted to know, he wanted to understand the illness. And he had a singular problem. And that problem was that his hand shook so much that he couldn't read the Wall Street Journal when he was on the can in the morning. And it drove him crazy. He wanted it fixed. So that's how we established that relationship. He is a, a very interesting fellow. All of these actors, and I now have a whole bunch of them, by the way, they are an odd bunch. Um, but of them, uh, Michael Fox is perhaps the most, uh, let's say, uh, compact personality, uncomplicated, seemingly what you see is what you get, and very hardworking. He is not one of these people, I think, who dwells on looking for great meaning in life, but he really did want to do something substantial. And as you can imagine, uh, everyone is after him for something. They want them to, him to endorse a product. They want him to, you know, write something for their jacket cover. But mainly, of course, they want his money because he's rather wealthy. Yeah. Uh, he decided to start this foundation. I'm getting to the end of my story. That was a good story. The purpose of this book was to launch that foundation. And therefore, I think we have to have some forbearance if he is self-promoting at the beginning and so forth. The, the title is apt because I think he really does consider himself to be a lucky man in many, many ways. Uh, the story of his thalamotomy, for which I took a terrible professional beating because everybody thought, what a terrible mistake, but it was the right thing to do, I, I can elaborate, um, is reflective of his willingness to think 
with you rather than become involuted and um, panic. So we spent six, eight months talking about what to do, deep brain stimulation, thalamotomy, none of the above, and so on. So I don't know, maybe, maybe that gives you a little bit of color. That's about the best I can do. And I have more to say, but are there, is there anything you want to know? He gave, by the way, I, I've written a book I'll tell you about in a moment. He figures in it. He promised me that uh, this is 14, 12, 14 years ago, that if I could keep him on television for five more years, that he would buy me a Ferrari. Oh. Okay? Okay. Where is it? Hang on. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> right. That, that's what he sent me. That's my red Ferrari. <laughs> okay, well, um, this is... Well, that actually is from him. It's signed on the back. <laughs> so who, who's got a question for uh, Dr. Roper? To, uh, uh, Gareth, Gareth in, in, in the book, he says that um, he has quite a shock when the publication about his illness becomes public. And he mentions that with he'd given him cons his consent for you to release some medical information. And he found that even then, it, it was difficult for him to appreciate that he only had this short time or this, this length of time by which he was going to be allowed to sort of carry on. I mean, did you get that from him, that he understood about the time lag? Because even, even when that came out, he found it quite a surprise. It was quite shocking for him. Are you talking about the sociologic shock or the physical or the, the fact that... The, the fact that, the, you know, the, you've got the, he talks about this 10-year process. He's got 10 years in which to continue to work. And yeah, that, they, that certainly didn't come from me. And um, I think other people gave him that information and, and he was somewhat taken aback by it. Yeah. Of course, it's turned out to be untrue. In most ways, in every way. So, no, I, I, the big thing is, you know, the, these people, there's a lot of Newman. There's a lot of psychic energy around them. And everybody loves to be associated with celebrities and they identify with them. Um, so I think he got an outpouring of uh, sympathy that, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Anyway. Um well, I mean, do you think it's changed your practice at all, having had this very special patient? Well, one of the curious things is that it made me an instant Parkinson expert, which I'm not. But I, I follow about uh, several dozen Parkinson patients, maybe more. And I've seen uh, 200, perhaps, which maybe isn't a lot by the standards of a movement disorder expert. But it taught me a lot about what it means to be an expert. Um, uh, an expert is basically just someone from out of town, someone different. <laughs> and I, I, can, I can hold my own with the best of them. So, yes, it altered my practice. It made me a brief minor celebrity. Um, I see a lot of these uh, entertainment types now, both for Parkinson's and not Parkinson's. So it did, but, you know, as um, Dr. Smith can tell you, it couldn't possibly go to my head. 
Hugh, Hugh Morris, have you got a t- question for for Dr. Ropper? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I just kind of comment on on that. Actually, the um, one of the interesting things actually is actually tremor is quite unusual in early onset Parkinson's patients. So again, when we we did a little study when we did our study in Cardiff, in fact, older patients tremor is much more common, and younger patients tend to have an akinetic rigid presentation without tremor. So that's kind of unusual. Um, you know, obviously genetic factors, the younger you are, the more likely you are to have, uh, to have um, genetic factors. Um, so, you know, and it's said, that part, it's said that tremor is more common in LERC2 disease. You know, Parkin is, is probably about 50% of patients under the age of 30 can have Parkin as the cause of their disease. And um, uh, so, you know, that's kind of what, what, what I'd be thinking with that. With that. I thought one of the interesting, well, there are a few things about um, that I thought that were interesting. One was about how he adjusts medication and how he kind of sort of juggles his medication around to keep to fit in with his um, with his um, sort of uh, filming schedule for his for his TV series. So was that um, did you sanction him self medicating in a sort of uh, you know in a way that he needed to to keep him going with his TV filming? Yes, I did, and we had multiple discussions about it and uh, been on the set of his TV programs many, many times. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, uh, but yes, I mean, look, he's got a profession, and uh, he's very committed to it, and it's highly, highly remunerative, and um, he's going to do it anyway. So I tried to set uh, some limits on it and then let him loose. Most Parkinson patients, I think you'd agree, know their illnesses very, very well. But, sure. but do, do, has it changed the way that you might have um, uh, allowed other people to do the same thing? Because uh, he, you know, he was in a position almost to call the shots with you, uh, yeah. uh, whereas perhaps other people might be more, have been more deferential to, to you know, uh, and, and just obey you, you know, comply with you, if you like, rather than... Well, I, certainly, I... I not that I needed this experience with Fox, but um, I have always been sensitive to the patient's rhythm and uh, needs. And I, I, my, I have no preconceived notions about the right way to use the medication. So I try to get the patients to keep a diary and then ask them what they need yeah. uh, in large part, guiding them by trying to limit dyskinesias and make them symptomatically better when they need to be symptomatically better. So there are a lot of people who need to be presentable for a business meeting. And uh, I give them the liberty of taking whatever they need in order to step up to the plate, as, it's, as they say. Great. Okay. Thank you. Hang on a minute. Um, it's, uh, Duncan McLaughlin is going to ask you a question. Can you yell it out? Yeah, you may or may not be able to go into great detail about this, but I just wondered why you opted or why you ended up as a you know joint decision going for the thalamotomy rather than the DBS or rather than tremor medication because you alluded to it earlier in your yeah discussion. I'm, I'm just I'm intrigued. Well, he needed. Well, keep in mind at the time DBS was relatively new here. Very few people were doing it, and fewer people were doing it well. That's number one. He needed something um, that would be quick, dependable, safe, and unilateral, because his tremor was really predominantly on one side. Furthermore, he did not want appliances or wires or anything of that sort. 
So the struggle at that time was if we did a thalamotomy and relieved his tremor, he had very tremor predominant disease early, virtually no uh, rigidity or uh, bradykinesia, very little, a little bit of hypomimia maybe. Um, so we investigated whether that would preclude doing DBS of the pallidum, and it did not. Uh, and the reason pallidum is that our local surgeons here, that's what they were doing. So that was the benchmark. So once we had concluded together that it didn't obviate the use of DBS later, um, it seemed like the right thing to do. And I write about that whole process in great detail, including the surgery itself done awake in a small out-of-the-way rural hospital in order to keep them out of the public uh, limelight in my book, which you should read. Can I ask one more kind of follow-up question? It was you mentioned that as, as a consequence of, of you know jointly taking that decision, you got a serious beating from your professional colleagues. You know, I, I certainly I feel like I'm quite introverted and go over my own decisions an awful lot all the time. How does it feel to be exposed to public? public scrutiny in that way? Um, you know, I'm, I'm an, I am uh, very unselfconscious and an extrovert, so I could care less. <laughs> but, it, but it was tough. Uh, many, many neurologists uh, on the East Coast in Boston and neurosurgeons were, uh, spoke to the press publicly about how stupid this was. And I had to zip my lip because we had arrived at this conclusion very systematically, very gradually and purposefully. And it was the right thing to do. And you know, he got almost five or six years of tremor relief on minimal or no medications. Uh, he was on no cinnamon, no L-dopa for many, many years after that. And uh, it was a great decision, it ends up. So uh, yeah, how did it feel? It's, it's tough, but I don't know. You know, the, part of it is jealousy on their part, honestly. It's that I was this no one with no, I didn't have a name and movement disorders. I was just a plain vanilla neurologist. You know, they, they didn't like it. So you know what? Tough shit. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. This podcast is getting better and better. So, no, Alan, it's been... Tremendous speaking to you. Thanks very, very much for uh, coming into our living room and uh, oh, it's talking to us tonight. It's been great, and uh, it's, it's sort of set a new benchmark for our book club, actually, to have, uh, have um, people Skyping in from overseas like this and uh, particularly giving such a, a great insight into the book. So thanks very, very much well, for that. No, thank you. Thank you very much. And while I was partly facetious, I have written a book about my experiences with neurology patients called Reaching Down the Rabbit Hole. Uh, and it's coming out in September. Um, Fox figures in a small way into one of the chapters. It's actually been picked up by UK publishers, so I'm sure you'll see it too. Great. And you also write uh, Adams and Victor's uh, pr Principles in Neurology as well. Correct, which I'd like people to buy often. Okay. <laughs> Lovely. Thanks very much. You better get back to clinic now, but thanks ever so much for joining thanks, us, Alan. It's really kind of you. Thank you. Bye-bye. No, my pleasure. Thank you.